0: Hey everyone, it's time for the Image Doctors Podcast where we talk about all things photography. I'm Jason O'Dell. I'm Rick Walker. And it's good to be back with you, Rick, and all of our listeners. What's up? Well, we've got a few new things
1: to talk about today, including a segment that we intend to continue doing that we hope people will like. Um, we're going to first talk a little bit about an update to a DxO product that we've enjoyed using, Pure Raw. They just came out with Pure Raw 3 So we'll talk about our thoughts on it. So far, I think it's safe to say, so good. Some nice improvements. Not everything we would like, but we'll talk about that. And then we're going to start a segment on influential or famous photographers and spend a few minutes talking about some. And and today, we're going to talk about a guy named William Eggleston. Um, Say that 10 times fast. Yeah, well, I said it once. (laughs) (laughs) You wrap your tongue around that <laughs> yeah it's a long name but interesting guy who whose photography the time it came out was very different and a little bit shocking i can remember the time it came out um and now it's very mainstream so we'll, we'll talk more about that cool
0: yeah definitely that sounds great um it'll be very fun to to mess with uh, this segment and, and you know dig out some names that we may or may not have heard of and you know do a little research in, on that and hopefully share that with all you guys out there in listener land so yep. um just the other day uh, earlier this week dxo released version three of their pure raw plugin um which is an interesting little thing we both had pure raw version two prior to this they also updated their um photo lab software is that correct rick
1: yeah, but just not a major release, just an incremental release. But the key thing is with that incremental release of Photolab, and with this new um, Pure Raw Three program, there's an important update for Fuji owners. Right. Which well, this is... is the Raw engine. Mm-hmm. So... There's a there's a new Raw engine that came in with Photolab here recently, you know, several months back. But it didn't work for Fujis yet. Oh, okay. Now it does. And it's just a incremental step that's better. You know, one better.
0: Yeah, one, one in louder. In terms of yeah, noise well, reduction and clarity. Well, let's just let's just mm-hmm. you know, big picture first. This is an alternative raw processing engine. It's an alternative raw processing engine, and like you already mentioned, pure raw, uh, or excuse me, the um, photolab is designed as a standalone raw editing software that DXO makes. And what came out this week was the update to that, but also the update to this pure raw plugin. And that's intended. You can use it as a standalone application, but you can also run it as a Lightroom plugin. And what it will do is it will take your raw file and, Use an alternative engine to demosaic that raw file, apply things like noise reduction, lens corrections, and to depending on how much you want, sharpening, right? That's the key here. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a competitor to Topaz Photo AI, but not in the same way. It works yeah. a little, it works similarly, but it also works differently. Yeah. So um, so I guess one of the things but it but a key thing about pure raw is if you use it with lightroom
1: as a plugin it has a very seamless feel to it you don't really feel like you're using multiple products and transitioning between no. things it's it's just it just fits right into your existing workflow very easily
0: yeah and and what it does is it's going to take your raw file and it's going to run it through its algorithms and you just get a little dialogue box that pops up. You just choose which very simple one. Yeah. Very, very simple. Nothing, no sliders, no, no anything. You just say, I want to do noise reduction and maybe a certain amount of sharpening. Uh, And, and you can check off the lens distortion corrections that you want. So chromatic aberration and distortion and vignette, you know, those things. And you can, you can check some or, or none of them, right. You can, you Mm -hmm. can do as much or as, as little as you want. And then what comes back to Lightroom, um, if you choose is a DNG raw image that you can then just adjust in your normal way using your Lightroom tool. You're not using a different raw editor. You're just starting with this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some caveats to that, but, you know, effectively where I'm seeing it do really well is it, it does a tremendous job with noise reduction and much better than what you can get out of Lightroom alone, for example. Right and because it's working on your raw file it does a superior job to say sending out a tiff and doing noise reduction in a tiff based program like whether it's photoshop or another plugin what it's doing with the with the noise is is amazing yeah. um, iso 25000 cleans up i mean it's just very good yeah uh, and, and i it, was
1: i was you know again because they've introduced the um, XD engine with Fuji's. Now, I, I had some images taken at the local zoo at 12,800, you know, with the, I think it was the uh, Fuji XH2S. And and they were glorious after yeah. having gone through it. I mean, they look like they were ISO 200 images,
0: quite honestly. Yeah, it was very, very good. amazing. Just um, amazing. And this is all based on AI types of algorithms under the hood, whatever mm-hmm. it's doing. Um, some other things that that this plugin does quite nicely is it can, can sort of sharpen um, and correct distortion from certain lenses that might otherwise not get great corrections from something like Lightroom or other tools um, where, uh, you know, like corners get a little bit mushy. So super wide range zooms, 24 to 200s at the wide end, you know, you'll get corner softness and it can recover a lot of that. Yeah, to a surprising degree. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a nice thing. Um, and other things that it can do just for for giggles is it can actually uh, recover more of the image area than the default crop curve, the, the default image area that you get out of something like Lightroom. Right. So you can actually get images sort of maximally sized where you get all of the image areas. And you might be surprised to get a little extra edges on the left and right side of your image when you run it through one of these tools. If you choose that option, you can you can choose not to do that too. So um, I think from a functional standpoint, it's very good. I think from a workflow perspective, there's some things to uh, to keep in mind, right? We have to talk about some caveats if you're going to use a tool such as this. Um, First of all, it only happens on the front end of your workflow if you're going to use it this way. Right. So you send it. This is not something that you edit a file and then send to this plugin to do your noise reduction. Um, You send your file to it first, it comes back into your Lightroom, and then you edit the image. And one of the consequences of programs like this and the the topaz software is that the dng that that you get back is already demosaic it's something called a linear dng is that right rick yeah which means it's also bigger in size right so if you've had a compressed three yeah so if it's like getting back an uncompressed almost uh, raw file so you're going to increase your file size but the key to remember is that the adjustments that you use, that you the that you apply with these tools, um, with the with the um, pure raw plugin, are baked in at that point. Specifically, noise reduction, sharpening, distortion correction,
1: right. all the, of those things you can't change. You, you'd have to just do it again.
0: Right. So the Not good news deal. The good news is that what it does is very very good, but you don't necessarily want to use this on every file it's not like you're going to run all of your raws they certainly they certainly give you that option with the standalone product where you could just take a folder and convert them all to dng using this engine i wouldn't personally do that just because of the the size the time required these ai as these ai algorithms get more more intensive uh if you don't have a newer computer (laughs) you can really notice right i mean i'm running a a Mac studio with whatever it is, 10, 10 GPU cores or so, whatever it is. I can't remember, not the highest one, but you know, a good one. And it still takes a, a good 30 seconds or so to run one of these, you know, a uh, high resolution images, like from a Z nine or a, right. or, 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 or a Z seven or something like that, a 45 plus megapixel image. So that, that takes a little while. So you don't want to necessarily do this on tons and tons of images. If you want to have fun, run it through, um, Run a 102 megapixel
1: image through it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's the one that'll make things choke a little.
0: Yeah, no kidding. But it so, still works fine. So yeah, so there's a time penalty you're gonna gonna pay for that, but it's it, it's really really good. Um, so uh, the the plus that I see from from my standpoint, you've already alluded to one, which is Fuji X Trans sensor cameras are now supported by this engine. Mm-hmm. So you can get a benefit, um, especially if you're a Lightroom user, because traditionally Lightroom has struggled with getting the most out of XTrans files. Right. At least in terms there, of there's things that
1: you can do, but
0: it's never quite as good. So that's so that, very that nice. is a benefit. Um, the other thing that made me very happy is that it natively reads the new high efficiency NEF format that Nikon has for the Z9. Um, a lot of other tools will only read those if you convert them to DNG first, and then you run into some, you know, cumbersome issues as well. So this is very nice. I've tried it with my Z nine files from my recent birding workshop and man, it just worked great. Um, you can just invoke the plugin. I didn't have to do anything. It returns back to Lightroom. Um, the only knit that I had is it returns back and it doesn't, it doesn't remember my original as shot camera profile. It just sets it to Adobe color, but no big deal. I just fix, I can just reset that. And it's not a problem.
1: Yeah. It is a little bit annoying now.
0: It, it's a little annoying. Yeah. Um, the, the, the denoise is amazing. Sharpening can get you into trouble like we've talked about before. So if you do use it for sharpening, you got to be really careful because unfortunately there's no way in this tool to preview what you're going to get out of it before you hit save. And um, with the Topaz Photo AI or Sharpen AI product, those you can. You can see the effects of the preview of the sharpening. Um, Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit before,
1: like previous DXO products the amount of sharpening varies too much between camera and lens combinations. Some are just fine and, and what would now be called the standard sharpening in this updated tool looks fine. And then sometimes it's atrocious. It's just way too much. Um, it would. It certainly should be more consistent. I don't know why it isn't. That's
0: that's a failure in their testing and development process. There's about four or five levels of sharpening. And to be honest, I've never gone past the second one, which is the quote standard. No. Uh, and even and, that and can be a little crunchy sometimes if you're not it, careful. It can be very much too so, crunchy. So if times. you're if you're trying to have the most conservative workflow and just use it as a noise reduction tool, which I think is amazing at, I think it's very good. You could just turn the, um, the sharpness either to the soft setting or off and then do your sharpening on the back end with a tool like, you know, Photo AI or Sharpen AI or just use Lightroom or or whatever you have and just sharpen it.
1: And with certain lens and camera combinations, even if you turn it off, it's still good. It actually never applies zero sharpening. It still does some low-level sharpening. Some
0: detail enhancement.
1: Right, and oftentimes that's enough. But it's just one of those things that unfortunately you need to experiment with because of that variability right don't just don't view it as just a black box and hit the button and accept whatever it does on its default settings that's not always the best thing
0: what i find is that for noise reduction operating on a raw starting point is superior for sharpening you can operate on a tiff later on either you can just sharpen in lightroom uh, or if you need to use more advanced sharpening, you could use one of those other tools like Sharpen AI, Photo AI, whatever, and just do the sharpening piece on an exported TIFF so it doesn't get um, baked in, um, and you have it on a separate file, and that works too. Um, you just got to be very careful that if you if you sharpen up front, it's going to be in there, and so whatever you get is going to you can't undo it. Um, there's only um, let's see, but I like the plugin. There's one other thing that I don't understand, and it doesn't give you the ability to save your file back to your original directory. It insists on putting it in a in a subdirectory called DXO in your in your original folder. And why they do that, I don't know. It's feedback. I don't like that as a Lightroom user. Oh, I could yeah. understand it if you wanted a partition if you were just running a bunch of images through the tool and not using it as a plugin, then I get it. You'd want them in a separate folder potentially so that you could, you know, work with them um, and keep them in a partition. But for Lightroom, it's, it's a non-issue. So I'd like to see that change, have an option to yeah. save in the original directory.
1: It has an option where you can pick, you know, manually pick the the folder that it goes in, but you'd have to change that every
0: single time. Yeah. That and would only be useful if you were then going to say, I'm going to have a destination folder for my DXO DNGS and put them in some yeah. other folder of your liking.
1: But it, it, it escapes me why they don't just have the, <laughs> the most obvious option. Return it to the original folder.
0: Right. Nevertheless, it is available from the DxO website. We both think it's a worthy product I think it's definitely if you do a lot of lower light shots especially wildlife type things my goodness it can be a game changer and clean things up and like we talked about it can it can do a really nice job with super
1: wide zooms you know if you're printing larger and and care about edge sharpness at the widest focal lengths great tool for that but I just use
0: it on a subset of images not that many but it's worthwhile to have. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on from that um, and discuss a little uh, photographer history. Mm -hmm. And this week we're going, we've chosen um, William Eggleston, who was uh, American and he's still around. He was born in uh, 1939. Um, And um, you know, more about him, uh, than I did, but I think we're both influenced by him subconsciously, <laughs> you know, even if, yeah. even if, if it wasn't directly, um, a couple of interesting things, but uh, he, he really started getting into photography early on, but most of his famous stuff started happening in the, in the early to mid seventies was seems right. like when it was really peaking, um, and so there's a couple of things that he brought to the table. Um, w- w- tell me about some of this. Uh, I mean, one was his subjects, but another was his medium, right? Yeah. And, and I'll just frame
1: it a slightly different way. And, and a lot of this had to do with the age I was um, when I was starting to get interested more seriously in photography, which was, you know, like time period between I was when I was 10 and 13. Mm-hmm. So pretty young, but I got pretty interested in it. And I would, you know, go through books and magazines at the school library and just try to learn as much about what photographers were doing. And his stuff started showing up in a lot of the bigger photography magazines, which at the time were in the US, were popular photography, modern photography, and a thing called Camera 35. Those had the biggest market share and he was getting um, exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, there was a guy there who was an extremely influential um, director of photography, John Cerkowski, who's in that role for a long time, and he picked out of Eggleston stuff um, to exhibit, and so it got coverage in a lot of the magazines. When I first saw it, I thought, what the heck is this? This mm-hmm. looks like a guy with Instamatic that you know wasn't always aiming well and doesn't mind showing some of his snapshots. But it you know it, it was one of those lessons to me about sometimes you have to be careful about your initial reactions. And when it grew his style grew on me and then I also see it, saw it show up in other photographers' styles some of which were Contemporaries of of his, like Stephen Shore, also ended up with stuff at MoMA. And um, you know, it's like when we've gone out and done a lot of the rural photography. I'm absolutely channeling <laughs> Eggleston in my head. Right. So let's he, back up for a second.
0: Consciously, yeah. I mean, the, the, what struck me as you know, in that time frame, mm-hmm. what as being so different was two things the subject matter, which tended to be mundane, rural, Southern American scenes, you know, just, you know, old car just sort of parked in front of a billboard or a shack, you know, or just, you know, he just, wasn't picking out the pretty areas in town, right? These were not like grandiose, spectacular, uh, scenery, landscapes. Um, but when you consider much of the U S we don't have a lot of old architecture, brick or stone carved buildings that have been around for hundreds of years and the grandiose, you know, Gothic architecture. Right? We have a lot of wooden things that are shacks that get run down and worn out with age. Um, they're not, you know, they're they're under a hundred. They were not years old.
1: built by kings.
0: They were built by ordinary people to be just functional
1: right that. So, so there's and nothing
0: there's very little staying power in some of the some of the rural uh, architecture that we have around here um so he did that but the other thing that he was doing it was, was he was using color at a time when that was less common at least you know fine art stuff um yeah, the time... color hadn't been around but if color was around but but at that time i think the big challenge with color uh especially if you were shooting transparencies like Kodachrome was what was a good print process how do you make that into a print because that's challenging especially from a color positive like like slide film it was um, contrast levels were difficult just a variety of things and and you know it's 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 very difficult to get a good print um, and one of the things he found while he was um, teaching at Harvard actually in the early 70s was, dye transfer process which is a very painstaking process where you have different dye layers of each you know the cmy uh, the, the color layers on a single emulsion um but it's at the time it's probably one of the best it was probably the was. Like gold standard was. as to how to make a a color print so you know when you look at some of his famous um images like the red ceiling you know you can it just screams co- uh coat um Kodachrome, mm-hmm. uh having that intense intense red um but i i know from having shot slide film what would come back from a lab was never quite as satisfying as what was what you saw on the light table through a loop i don't so know i mean you as know. a print yeah what came back from a yeah. print was just yeah, they, ne- the the contrast, the richness. It was just never quite the same. There's something almost three dimensional about looking at a t- color positive transparency on a sl- on a light box. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just me, maybe. But I no, I think that's I, I true, definitely too. see that. So um, you know, it was interesting um, that uh, you know uh, one of the works he did was. Uh, um, he he did a lot of shooting in um around uh um oh, in in Georgia at uh it was uh, plain's georgia which is jimmy carter's home right around the time of the election so so he was shooting um know right before the the 1976 election he has a whole bunch of photos from there um which is kind of topical um um but uh Anyway, what else do we want to talk about? I mean, because I know how it's influenced us indirectly, because we like to go out and shoot those Mm kind of urban decay, rural, just find something. And it's almost a lo-fi snapshot style. And this is kind of one of the historical origins of that style. Bingo. And and I think that's why it's
1: really important. And like I said, there were a few others doing it the same time, but he was probably the one that got prominence first. Um, you know, and and I think a lot of people today might look at his stuff and go, eh, it looks like a lot of other things I see. But that's only because he was influential and shaped those other photographers. Mm-hmm. It's very well suited to Instagram, <laughs> just saying. It would, yeah. I'd say Instagram was influenced by him, um, at least, you know, indirectly, so... He's an interesting one to check out, and you know what I would say is, you know, don't go in expecting these glorious, colorful nature prints and grand scenics. His no. stuff is incredibly different than that. These look got like his things.
0: Charm. These look like some shots that I took when I was in elementary school with my one ten camera. Yeah, and they it, really. That's
1: my initial reaction when I saw it as a twelve or thirteen year old, but. There's more to it mm-hmm. give it time.
0: You know and a good place to see that would be on say the Museum of Modern Arts website moma.org.org that um, they have a nice there's a couple hundred of his in their collection that you can browse easily.
1: We'll have a link to their stuff on our
0: on our Facebook
1: page and on, on your website as well. Yep well um, well that's very but cool would, we're gonna I would think about getting a nice book
0: um so definitely check it out check out eggleston if you haven't done so already and we're going to continue this theme um, in the coming you know in the near future to, to touch on other uh important photographers at least ones we think are important so if you've got a suggestion for us for someone you'd like to, to discuss don't forget to drop us a note over on our facebook page facebook.com slash image doctors and until next time happy shooting
1: all right bye-bye